Welcome to the Talking Code Podcast. I'm Josh Smith. And I'm Venkat Dinavahi. And we're having short interviews with experts that help you decode what developers are saying. If you're a first-time listener, make sure to go to TalkingCode.com and sign up for our mailing list. We send out links to new interviews along with exclusive content just for our subscribers. So we're here with Justine Jordan of Litmus to talk about email. Thanks for joining us, Justine. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So given that uh, we obviously want emails to be read, how are most people reading email today? Wow. Uh, So we're in a really great position here at Litmus that we have tons of stats on this very subject uh, matter. Uh, So we have an analytics tool that uh, measures whether people are reading emails in desktop, what we call webmail which is basically any browser-based email program. Yeah, that's still technically desktop, but we separate it out as a different category, or what we call mobile, which is like a smartphone or tablet. And so um, we are tracking more than a billion opens a month these days with this analytics platform, which is super cool, because then what we do is we take all those stats and publish them to our audience. And what we're seeing lately is, of course, unsurprisingly, a massive growth of email being opened on mobile devices of one type or another. Uh, We've been tracking the data for, I guess, four years now, since like early in 2011. And it's really fascinating to look back and see how much it's changed in the last four years. At the beginning of 2011, we had about 8% of those emails being opened on mobile devices. And now four years later, it's increased more than 500%. And now we're seeing between like 49 and like 52, depending on the month of that traffic opened on mobile and with the balance being on, on desktop and webmail. So it's it's increased quite a bit. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I didn't realize that the numbers had grown that much. Yeah. It's just mind blowing how much it's changed. Uh, you know, I got on stages you know, back in 2011 and I was like, hey guys, you need to know that 10% of your audience is you know, viewing email on mobile, we need to pay attention to this. And now I'm like, hey, like, if you're not paying attention, like, it's time to start. Because, you know, emails viewed on small screens have a litany of, of potential challenges that need to be addressed. So, Right. And we're, we're definitely going to get into that here in a bit. But I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to know then, um, what are uh, most companies doing to send these emails? I mean, is it like, everybody's using sort of the same technology? Or how does that work? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about sending email, there's so many different things that we can think about, some more technical, some less technical. So there's the infrastructure that you send from, right? Commonly known in in our industry, the email industry is an ESP or an email service provider. So that's like your MailChamps, your your constant contacts, maybe your exact target if you're, you know, bigger, have a really high volume or, or responses or something like that. But you can also, you know, roll your own and create your own email infrastructure, which isn't something that we typically recommend at Litmus unless you really know what you're doing. I think it's it can be really attractive, especially to like a, a small business or a startup founder, um, especially if you do know what you're doing to get a service like Mandrel or even like Amazon SES and kind of create your own mailing system on top of that. But what happens then is that you can run into basically deliverability problems where your emails aren't reaching the inbox because the infrastructure isn't being properly managed. Deliverability is a really, really complex thing that we could probably do a whole other podcast about. So yeah, it's there's a wide variety of service options out there. 
it's hard to recommend just any one because every company and every needs are going to be different. But I, I would definitely, you know, take a look at those services as a starting point to see which one meets the needs of, of you know, the pursuer the best. You discussed a couple of different types of these ESPs, these email service providers, and it sounded like there was a distinction between a couple of them there. There was uh, Mandrill, which is on the transactional email side. And for those who aren't really familiar with transactional email, we have a great interview with uh, the founders of Send With Us. And then also these more traditional marketing blast emails like Constant Contact, MailChimp. Uh, can you dig into those a little bit more? Yeah, Absolutely. And before I do, I'm going to uh, do a small side tangent slash rant and tell you in the audience that blast is a very bad word in this industry. Blast, uh, I like to say, is, is like the bombs or the rockets of the world. And you never want to send a bomb or a rocket to your customer, right? So you never want to send an email blast either. <laughs> right. No, it's. It, I think it's great that you point that out too, because I feel like just having worked with a lot of clients who use email, sometimes they don't necessarily use it in the best way. So I'd love oh. to hear you talk about what the, the best way to be using this email is. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's um, that's a specialty of mine. <laughs> so we can talk about that later. But to answer your question, um, yeah, absolutely. You can loosely categorize most of the emails that people send these days into those two camps, like a transactional or a triggered email, which is going to be an email based off of a behavior and activity, or just like it sounds, a transaction, either in your app or product or whatever, somewhere in your customer's universe, um, versus a more traditional marketing email that's going to be traditional, you know, promotionally for the most part. Um, there's other great stuff you can do with email that's not promotional, but that's typically what we think of it as. And a lot of platforms these days are starting to actually offer capabilities for both where they'll handle both your mass or bulk mailings in addition to your transactional mailings. So you can take that approach where you have a different provider for each one, or increasingly you're able to find providers that offer both. Again, pros and cons, everyone's needs are going to be different. I can't tell you which way is the best way. But there are things like um, reputation management, like every sender that sends email has reputation associated with what's IP addresses, which is, again, the sending infrastructure. Um, there's things like uh, subscription preference management. It can make that kind of thing easier on you. So it, again, just all depends on what your needs are. And you mentioned that there are potential downsides to doing this stuff yourself. I mean, not least of which, of course, is investing time and money into building a platform <laughs> that uh, maybe other people are better at. But sure. what are some of the other downfalls? I mean, you, you mentioned deliverability is a really big one. Yeah, I, I think that deliverability is probably the number one thing that I would be concerned about. On one hand, uh, like Mandrill especially, MailChimp is maniacal about managing their sender's reputations. They have um, this crazy service that I think is called Omnivore because they have clever names for everything <laughs> that tries to look at the behavior of all of their senders that are on their service and actually like notifies their staff in advance if behavior tends to look bad. Because what happens is um, you're usually sending from what's called a shared IP where many, many senders 
are sharing the infrastructure for that. And what happens then is like one like bad apple kind of ruins the bunch, right? If you've got one person that's like buying lists and sending crap emails and lots of people are marking them as spam, everyone in that IP bucket basically suffers from that behavior of that one sender. So you don't want to do that, right? And so that's the great thing about these ESPs is they manage that for you so that you don't have to worry about some jerk, you know, ruining the sender reputation of the IP you're on and also getting your emails marked as spam. Okay, that makes sense. So you have MailChimp and you have Mandrill. Could you explain what the difference is between the two? I understand that they're from the same company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I don't work there, so I can't give you all the ins and outs. But from my understanding or my point of view is that, you know, you could use them both or you could just use one or the other. Uh, so Mandrill traditionally is going to be that transactional or that triggered email program where most people that use Mandrill are probably using their API. Uh, so it's the more technical users, the folks that have built something that integrates with that. So they're triggering emails. Like, for instance, Litmus actually uses Mandrill whenever we need to uh, send like a password reset email that gets, you know, built in our application that information gets passed through there, goes through the Mandrill API, and it shoots off that triggered or that transactional email so that someone can reset their password immediately. Um, but on the flip side, we use a different provider, a MailChimp-like provider, to like help us load our lists and manage them and create dynamic content. And since we're B2B, it's more of like a marketing automation platform where we can do other things like build landing pages. So, you know, and, and that's, you know, some of that capability that, that MailChimp has too. So it's not to say that you can't send one-off or like, you know, kind of triggered emails in a MailChimp-like thing. But you could also build a, your own bulk mailing tool on top of Mandrill. I know people do that too. So again, like there are differences. It just is based upon what your business needs and what your use case for email is. Right. I mean, we've used them with clients and in our own products as well. But both of those tools, actually, both Mandrill and MailChimp. And we use it exactly like you're talking about. MailChimp for us tends to be maybe we've got product updates or things that apply to every customer that we have. But then... Mandrill would be, like you said, a password reset or maybe a reminder about something that's coming up in the application that's specific to that yeah. user. So, I guess the best way to think of it as if you need to manage a list and if you're doing like a list-based send, so that's typically where that awful blast word comes from. But, you know, a list can be five people or it can be five million people. So that's what you know, the MailChimps of the world are going to do a really good job at is managing that list and helping you manage that list. Whereas the mandrels in the transactional email platforms are just going to shoot off one email at a time and aren't going to be good at managing a list, at least not in a nice, shiny, like non-tech person's friendly UI, right? <laughs> right, absolutely. Yeah, and it sounds like Mandrill is something that you would need the developer to implement himself. Yeah, absolutely. They they have a, they do have a nice UI. Like a lot of those transactional mail platforms don't, but yeah, but it still would be like it's a little too technical for me, for instance, and I'm okay technically. So, I would definitely, you know, I partner with our dev team to help get email set up in there. Right. So, is designing an email that is going to be read by one of our users the same thing as designing a web page that somebody is going to land on? Absolutely not. <laughs> I, I think that's, um, again, I can get very ranty about this um, and talk for ages. 
But I think that's the number one challenge and frustration that a lot of people come across is that they expect an email to behave like a one-page website. Because how hard could it be, right? They're both HTML and CSS. They all kind of do the same thing. But at the end of the day, there's two things happening, right? A, the technology that an email versus a web page has to use is very, very different. Yes, they both use HTML and CSS, but you'll commonly hear email referred to as, uh, you know, code like it's 1999. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for that is because, you know, if anyone's been around for as long as, you know, I have, I actually learned, like in college, I took like a web design 101 class and they taught me how to do web page layouts using tables which, you know, if you're not very, you know, into the HTML world, HTML tables, if you can visualize like an Excel spreadsheet with like columns and rows, that's how people, you know, in 1999 um, would lay out web pages. Like, you know, images would go in this column and like text would go in this row. And that's how you would like lay it out. Right. Uh, I was coming up at the time when CSS was just starting to really take hold in the web and people were just so amazed by all the things that you could do with it. Yeah, for, like CSS Zen Garden blew our minds, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, oh my gosh, so the exact same content can be redesigned like multiple different ways. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the, the web has come a long way. And so folks like yourself, potentially, that only grew up knowing that reality get really frustrated by email's need to use this table-based layout. And so the way that I kind of try to position it or, you know, try to evangelize email, because that's one of the hats I wear, <laughs> is to say, like, you know, stop trying to force email to be a web page. Like, just because HTML and CSS work that way for the web doesn't mean they have to work that way for email. Like, why can't we just think of email as a different medium that requires this different language, this different set of markup? And I think we'd all be a little bit happier if we stopped trying to put email in like the web design bucket. That makes sense. So what does that mean practically then for people that are trying to build these emails? Yeah. So what it means is that your strategy has to change in both two ways. So again, the tech behind the scenes, the HTML and CSS that you're using, you can't take a web page or a page from your website strip it out, change the content and send it through, you know, your MailChimp or your Mandrel and expect it to look okay. Because what happens is the, the email readers, you call them email clients, it's the program that you use to check your email. They don't have the same support for HTML and CSS that websites do. And that's what necessitates using the table-based stuff. So, you know, it's either a skill that needs to be developed or there's Buku templates available. Um, you know, Litmus has some that I'd be happy to have you, you know, download. Um, but the other thing is, is that it, it's, it's a strategic thing too. So not only is email not a website from a technical perspective, but it's also not from a strategy and a marketing perspective, right? Usually what email is, is a driver to the web. And so we have to think about different copy, different calls to action, a different strategy around it. And also the other thing that's really crazy about email is we think about just the artifact, right? Like, the thing that people read once they open the email. But truth be told, half the battle in email is even getting people to open it and look at it at all. <laughs> you know, the best open rates in the world are like, you know, 30, 40, 50%. Those are the only people that are looking at that artifact, that, you know, one page website. Haha, <laughs> not really. 
And so the other things we have to think about is the from name, like who's sending this email? Is it from someone I know, a brand I trust? What is the subject line? Is it misleading? You know, is you're trying to use first name personalization, like hi, Justine, but it's broken and it just says hi blank instead. And then there's this stuff called the, the preview or the preheader text, which is if you use an iPhone, you know, you see the from and you see the subject and there's like these two lines of text underneath it in the inbox. So there's a whole bunch of other like stuff that comes along with email that even further differentiates it from being a web page. You know, you don't have from names and subject lines and preheader text and landing pages and all that kind of stuff because after the email, someone has to go to your website. So it needs to be different. <laughs> so why is it that sometimes you might design an email and it shows up great in someone's Gmail account, but then someone opens it up in Outlook and then it's, you know, looks all jarbled up and it doesn't look like the email that you originally intended. Yeah. So this is something that blows a lot of people's minds. So, you know, in, again, if we look back to the history of web design, we can learn a lot, perhaps in the email world, uh, the browser wars, remember those where like everyone hated Internet Explorer, I guess people still do sometimes, but because it didn't display web pages correctly. So that's a similar challenge, but like tenfold that we have going on in the email world today. So you would think, you know, because this is logical, that these programs that display your email would be using the same thing that a web browser uses or uses a web browser to render them or to display the HTML. And that's sometimes the case, but not always. Um, so Outlook, for instance, for the PC, if you're using um, 2007, 2010, or 2013, that's actually using Word which is a word processing program to read the HTML and display it. So you can imagine the kind of trouble that happens when you have a word processing tool that was never intended to read HTML, reading HTML. Yeah, that's that's insane. I, I mean, it's funny too how the pain with even just browsers and, you know, we talked about how much easier it is to build for web browsers than it is for email still runs deep with developers. Uh, we have this like freelancer meetup, I guess you could call it, uh, uh, every month here in San Diego. And, um, last night we were at this brewery and my friend was wearing an internet explorer t-shirt and every single person at the table questioned his choice of wearing this t-shirt. <laughs> he said, well, he said the Microsoft guys, I guess, had way too many of it because Internet Explorer is now going to be end of life. It's going mm -hmm. away and they're replacing it with a, a new browser. So they're just giving these t-shirts away. And he asked, is it okay to wear this ironically? And <laughs> the guys at the Microsoft table responded, there's no other way to wear it, honestly. <laughs> at least they're accepting of that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, they like they're embracing yeah, it. They're so like, yeah, so this, this t-shirt is hilarious. And that's just one of the problems that we face. Like Gmail, the reason why emails often look horrible in Gmail, uh, and the reason for that is because what Gmail is doing is stripping the entire style block out of HTML. So again, this is something that really frustrates people that come over from the web world. They're very used to this idea of separating presentation from content, which is a fancy way of saying uh, the way something looks. So the styling, like the font and spacing and color and that kind of thing from the content, which is the words and the images. Sorry, could um, you explain uh, what you meant by a style block stripping away? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what happens there is in most HTML documents, again, that the web folks are using, in the very top of the HTML will be a tag that says style. And then there's a whole bunch of instructions that tell that document, you know, that web page or that email, how to present that content. So what fonts, what colors, all that kind of stuff, what to use. And so Gmail 
if there's anything in that style block at the top of the document, it gets cut right out. <laughs> so what you have is, is the content, which is great, right, for accessibility, but all of the, the pretty fonts and the branding and all that kind of stuff, you know, goes away. So there's ways around that. But again, if you don't know that's happening, or if you're trying to make email behave like a web page, you might have some problems with Gmail. <laughs> yeah, that definitely uh, sounds painful. I, I, I actually, so there's this concept of inlining styles. Mm -hmm. And that means taking those styles and putting them into the rest of the document, right? So you're not trying to separate the presentation from the styling. It's just part of the document itself. Um, exactly. How do you feel about this concept of uh, like CSS inlining or automated inlining that developers are doing where they, they are writing it separately and maybe previewing it on a, on a web page and then like hoping that the email program that they're sending from takes that uh, styling and puts it back into the email inline. Does that work or do you see issues with that? Yeah. So in inlining is, um, you know, it's a, hotly contested battle, I think, in the email design community. And the reason for that is you'll have like old school people like me that learned how to write styles in line from the very beginning. And it's just something that I'm used to and accustomed to. And I also prefer the confidence and control and knowing that I did that and it's going to behave the way I expected. Whereas, um, you know, when inlining tools first came out, they weren't very reliable. And so they've come a long way. There are great tools that will move those styles in line for you so that you don't have to write them in line. But some of the things that you have to kind of keep in mind is that, A, not every mailing platform, you know, ESP has them. Um, we've been talking a lot about MailChimp in this interview. MailChimp definitely does have an option where they'll move your styles in line for you. And they have a really smart inliner tool too. Because one of the th other things that you can run into is where if you have what's called a media query, which is how responsive design works. It's like the instructions that tell an email how to look different on different screen sizes. That's something that you don't want to be inlined. Um, so it gets kind of complex kind of fast and some inliners will not know that that's a rule that they shouldn't do and they'll inline the media query too. And then what happens then is that you've got your email, like the mobile version of your email being displayed everywhere and not just on mobile devices. So inlining is definitely a thing that you can do. There's some tools that are better than others, but A, you should never trust that your mailing platform or your ESP has it built in because some do and some don't. And you definitely want to just double check that it did its job properly and didn't mess anything up. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. Okay, so you mentioned this concept of uh, responsive design a little bit here um, in talking about media queries. And we also talked about the fact that um, you said between like, what was it, 2011 and now there's been a 500% increase in the number of people reading email on mobile devices. So given that and given this concept of responsive design, which, you know, we may have heard once or twice or a lot if you're in my shoes. But what is that? What does that mean? And how does it work? Uh, what does it mean for uh, actually being able to read those uh, emails on different screen sizes? Yeah, absolutely. Responsive is definitely one of the, the buzzwords de jour lately, I think. And so what that means, and this is, again, a concept that email has borrowed heavily from the web world. And 
I think you'll still find some like hardcore web folks that will say like email is really not responsive and we could argue about that all day long. But the general concept is that a responsive email is going to adapt itself to the screen size that the viewer is currently looking at it on. So if I have, uh, you know, the same email and I open it simultaneously on my iPhone and on my desktop, then it's going to automatically scale to fit the size of the screen that it's viewed on. So that's an awesome idea. But of course, everything in email is never as straightforward as it seems. So um, responsive design is driven by this thing called a media query. And basically what that is, is it's like a set of rules that you write for the email to say, hi, email, if this email is viewed on a screen that's smaller than 300 pixels, then do this. And so you have to write out that set of requirements um, and kind of tell the email what to do on that different screen size. So there's a couple challenges there, right? Um, not everyone understands how to write that query. Um, it can be a little bit of a learning curve um, for anyone, even if you're really accustomed to you know, writing email. I had to learn how to do this a few years ago because it was a new technology. Um, then the other thing is that that media query, that thing that makes the responsiveness happen, surprise, surprise, isn't supported everywhere in email. <laughs> like, you know, right. we're, we're seeing a theme here, right? With support in email, it, it can be tricky. So like Gmail, again, is going to be your worst offender because they're stripping out that style block that we talked about earlier. That's exactly what's happening here with the responsive email is that it strips out that style block. The media query gets stripped out along with it and responsive email doesn't work, say, in the Gmail app on your iPhone. And you would say, oh, well, I'll just inline it. And that's the problem, again, that we were talking about earlier, where if that media query gets inlined, then suddenly your email is the mobile version everywhere and not just in mobile devices. So it's a great solution. It's not a perfect one, but it's definitely something that if you know you have a lot of people opening on mobile devices, I would encourage anyone to explore. Okay, that makes sense. And is there any challenge with, so let's say that I'm a developer and I'm trying to implement these media queries. Do you see challenges with some non-integrated design and development teams where a designer is maybe building an email to look a certain way and now the developer has to try and make it work on different screen sizes? Absolutely. That's probably like one of the number one headaches that I hear people discussing when we're talking about this. And oftentimes email, what you find is that there's a parallel process going on where there's a creative team that builds like a Photoshop mock-up that then passes it along to a dev team. And then there's a lack of understanding on both sides of the table where the creative team doesn't understand the technical limitations that's going to happen once that email gets passed along to dev and dev might not understand like the creative team's limitations or the, you know, the dev team might not understand this problem with media queries or, or what have you. And so it definitely does present challenges. And I think one of the biggest things, like we have this email design conference every year and it's the process and workflow sessions are always the most popular because this is such a pain point for these teams that are struggling with this. Yeah, it really has been for us. I mean, just doing client work, you end up having, you come into situations where the teams are uh, not necessarily ideal, right? They've got a designer that they've worked with for forever who maybe has a background in print design and certainly has no understanding of uh, the difficulties that are posed by this. But even beyond that, I mean, so much has changed in the past 10 or 15 years that 
you get people who are accustomed to a fixed width design and they haven't changed their thought processes to think in terms of multiple sizes. Absolutely. And the other problem is that, you know, we already talked about some of the challenges that come with email and support for HTML and CSS. But if, especially with those with the print design background, and I'll tell you a secret, I actually have a print design background. So this is one of my like secret ticks, right? When you do that Photoshop mock and like, you know, the text is wrapping perfectly and there's no orphans and no widows. And I'm showing my true like email print geek side here, <laughs> but you just can't expect anything on the web, including email to look the same as it does in a Photoshop mock. And I think that gets frustrating for a lot of folks too. We're like, your custom branded font, you know, isn't supported or the text isn't wrapping in the right place. Or this is a big pet peeve of mine, you know, like the button, I don't want the text to wrap at all. And it is. And so we just can't be that picky. You know, we have to understand that in order for the user to get the best experience, the medium has to be flexible. And so that's where I think a lot of concessions need to be made or just an understanding reach that this might not look like the way that you want your brand to look, but it's a better experience for the user. And sometimes that's the right choice to make. (laughs) Right. I I mean, I think there are trade-offs to be made here too, especially when you're a business and you're trying to solve some sort of business problem for your customers. And, you know, I shouldn't be spending time despite how OCD I am looking at, you know, well, between 330 and 348 pixels, the button text wraps. That's a big pet peeve of mine too. And yet, you know, I I have to catch myself saying, this is not a good use of my time right now. Absolutely. Yeah. Like unless you have hard data saying that people don't click on buttons where the text has wrapped to two lines, then like, well, why are you killing yourself? (laughs) Yeah. So what's the experience between responsive and non-responsive emails? Let's say I'm reading a non-responsive email on my phone. How does that appear to me? Yeah, so depending on how you know, that email was created, it could be okay or it could be disastrous. Some of the, the worst, I'd say poorly optimized emails that I've seen on a mobile device have really tiny, unreadable text or emails where everything is captured as an image. And what happens on some mobile email programs is that images are blocked automatically. And so then I don't see anything (laughs) or I see like an ugly message that says download images instead of all of your copy and your content. Uh, So that's really what happens most often is that the email is like unreadable, unusable. I call them link clusters where, and this happens all the time where you're stuck like pinching and zooming because if you try to tap the link, you go to the one next to it which is uber frustrating. So oh, that's yeah. pinch and zoom is like the worst experience ever. It it really is. And so, I mean, put it this way, like people aren't that committed to clicking through on your email. They're just not. Like I hate to break it to anybody out there. Even my own company's emails, right? We have a super engaged, like really passionate audience. But even there, like they're not going to work really hard to click through on your email. They're just going to delete it and move on if it's like impossible to use. Yeah, I can't count how many times I've gotten emails with tiny text. Is that something that's quick to fix? Well, again, it, it kind of depends on your process, right? Um, and that's where that whole creative and, and dev communication really becomes key. Um, one thing that everyone really needs to keep in mind is that iOS, which is the operating system that powers iPhones and iPads, automatically resizes fonts that are 
less than 13 pixels to be 13 pixels. So, you know, the simple solution is, you know, make everything at least 13 pixels. But even that's kind of on the small side. I like to say make your text like 15 or 16 pixels, which is about the equivalent, like if you're a a word guy um, or gal, like 15 or 16 points. And that's really just what you should do is just make all of your text bigger, you know, introduce more white space. That's called like line height, which is like, you know, word spacing or if like you double spaced your papers in college to get more, you know, pages out of them. (laughs) All those kinds of things are going to improve readability on a small screen like that. Right. I think Apple even just changed their human interface guidelines, which are their Mm -hmm. like design guidelines to bump up the point size on fonts. So. Uh, yeah, you know there there are actually like good defaults out there, and you probably don't need to break them. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and the, you can disable that auto resizing thing on iPhones to stop them from resizing fonts less than thirteen pixels. But it's nothing. It's never something I would advocate for because it's doing it for a reason, right? That size font on that small of a screen isn't readable. <laughs> you know, it's it's doing it for a reason. So what happens then to my business if my emails look bad on these mobile devices? That's a great question. So this idea of uh, measuring the impact of experience, especially a poor experience to like a business's bottom line is something that I'm incredibly passionate about. But for like the data-driven business owner or marketer, There isn't a ton of data out there, unfortunately, because experience is a very subjective kind of thing. There's no, you know, report in your marketing tool that says, hey, these, you know, 20% of people had a crappy experience reading your email. Um, The closest thing we can really get to is consumer surveys. And there's uh, one of those many uh, email platforms or ESPs that are out there is one called Blue Hornet. And they do a survey and ask people, if you get an email that looks bad on a mobile device, what do you do? And this is really kind of mind-blowing. Their survey from, I think, like 18 months or so ago said that 80% of people would delete an email that looked bad on a mobile device. And that's pretty bad. That's a lot of people. But the really crazy thing um, was that 30% of people would unsubscribe. And I think that's, you know, to the business owner or the marketer that is very email centric, like that's unsubscribe is a pretty serious move. So it's basically saying if I send an email that looks like crap on a mobile device, then I can never email this person again. It's like the ultimate email punishment. (laughs) Right. And I mean, how, how much work did you spend to get that person in the first place? Exactly. Like email, like, you know, everyone always talks about how valuable email is. It has like one of the highest ROIs. The value of an email address is, is, is crazy high, all this kind of stuff. So yeah, like you just lost that person for good based on some principles that are in practice, like pretty easy to fix. Like you can make your email look better on a mobile device. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So what are some good takeaways then for teams to try and improve this process and make sure that their emails do look good everywhere? Yeah, I mean, I think A, educating everybody involved in the email process about the limitations and holistically deciding as a group 
what to do about it. Do we do responsive? Do we do another approach? Uh, another really popular one, if um, responsive is kind of too much to bite off and chew, is just what's called mobile first. You know, Luke, Luke Robuski um, kind of pioneered that term and mostly for the web, but it's absolutely applicable to email. What that basically means is I'm going to put the needs of our mobile users before anybody else, but in doing so, probably improve everyone's experience. It's like, let's cut down on the amount of copy that we have. Let's make the text sizes bigger. Uh, you mentioned the Apple human interface guidelines earlier. I think the other thing that came from them was guidelines for touch targets. And they say that 44 pixels is a really good size to shoot for, which if you're not a designer, you don't really know what a pixel is. I always joke that you should just use the rule of thumb because your thumb is about 44 by 44 pixel size. And you can just say like, oh, is this touchable with my thumb? So that's something. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is maybe look at a single column design. If you have two columns side by side, you're trying to look at that on an iPhone screen, it's going to be harder to read. Like a one column design is going to be a little bit easier. That makes sense. Let's say I'm a startup and I have a, I have a million things to do from building the product to you know, keeping in touch with the customers. How much work should I be putting into my emails? Uh, well, I'm biased. <laughs> I'm going to say a lot. And, and here's why. Like, you know, Litmus is, is a small team. We're, we're, we try to be agile. We try to be really smart with the kind of resources that we use, but make the biggest impact that we can. And so one of the ways that we do that is, frankly, through email. So rather than hiring like a giant support staff or a bunch of account managers to help people like engage with our product, guess what? We use email to do it automatically. So you can pipe cool behavioral data about your product or your app into these tools. So if someone hasn't logged in in, say, a week, you can say, hey, you haven't logged in. Is there something we can help with? So you can really increase engagement in your product, your app, your service by using email. It's crazy how powerful it can be. Could you give a few more examples on how you could increase engagement? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that um, I see other companies doing, uh, for instance, like Basecamp, right? We're Basecamp users at Litmus. What they do is uh, every morning I get this digest email of the activity that happened the day before. And so that's something that absolutely can help increase engagement. If you have either activities happening or even lack of activity happening, you could send emails based upon that. Other things that I've seen people do, again, a lot of this is behavior-based. Uh, so if people, uh, say, aren't utilizing a specific feature, um, this is something that we do at Litmus too. Like if you buy one of our accounts that has this analytics feature, but you've only used our previews feature, we might email you and say, hey, you haven't tried analytics yet. Like here's how you get started. Like offer them a resource, a help article, a video tutorial, whatever that looks like. Okay, that's interesting. Very targeted emails. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where these, you know, these different platforms with different capabilities can be really helpful in that. They make that process a little less intimidating. <laughs> so it sounds like if I'm running a software team, my developers have quite a bit of work to do and designers as well. I'm not going to discount you, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I'd like to know what can I do to uh, support my developers in making email easier for them to deal with? Gosh, that's a that's a really great question. I mean, there's tons of resources out there, right? I'm proud to say that Litmus is the creator of a lot of them. I think that, you know, 
trying to help like ease the pain in any way you can. I think templates are a great way to do that too. We have some at Limus that we call Slate because they kind of offer you a blank slate to start with. Uh, they're really simple, but they try to cover the the main like use cases that you might have for email. We have like a newsletter, a product update, like kind of a promotional or like a hero email, a receipt, right? It's another great way that you can keep people engaged or something that I think every app should have is a nicely designed receipt email. So yeah, that's definitely one way to start. And that's something that I think a lot of people do is just get one set of really well done pre-tested templates that can help ease a lot of the pain. But then outside of that, you're always going to have the one-off troubleshooting things that cause like pain points. And there's a ton of great resources out there. I also would point anybody to what we have is the litmus community. It's kind of like a forum online, but anytime you uh, run into a problem, a ton of crazy smart people hang out in there and have probably seen every issue under the sun. So that's, for all the pain that email has, I think the best part about it is the community that's risen up around it. And they're super supportive. There's somebody out there that's seen the problems that you're facing. And chances are they're hanging out somewhere on Twitter or in that litmus community. And more often than not, they're just so happy to help because they've been there. They've felt that frustration, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. We don't have much time left, but I'd like to ask you to share a little bit about what Litmus does, because we didn't really get to dive into that much here. Oh, yeah, sure. I guess I've alluded to a little bit of it. So Litmus is a companion tool to some of these, you know, the MailChimps and these ESPs of the world. Um, we're even embedded in some of them. So like MailChimp has an integration with Litmus. So what we do is we take screenshots of what emails look like in all these different places, um, you know, as we discussed Gmail's got its issues. Outlook has its issues. So we take screenshots and show you what that looks like. Um, we also do the analytics to tell you where people have opened. We check links to make sure there's no bad links. We make sure that none of like your images are broken. So we're essentially a, a tool that helps you make email better, either from troubleshooting those design problems to understanding more about behavior from open rates. Um, we have a, a tool called Builder that has a lot of those templates and like code snippets built into it to help you build emails if you're writing HTML. We have the community. So just a whole ecosystem of stuff trying to help improve this experience of email. Right. Well, it's fantastic what you're doing. It's making my job a lot less difficult. So um. I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, we're coming out of the dark ages of email. Absolutely. We are. We are. I'm thrilled about it. It's very exciting. So can you tell us where we can keep up with you online? Yeah. So me personally, um, I'm Meladori on Twitter. That's M-E-L-A-D-O-R-R-I. It's an old Smashing Pumpkins song. You nice. know, one of those things where <laughs> you don't realize what you're signing up for until it's too late <laughs> with the name you choose. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm Meladori on Twitter. Litmus is Litmus app. Yeah. Or litmus.com is, is where you can find Litmus or Justine J is my personal website that I just recently built. So. Yeah. Oh, congrats. Thank you. Well, thank Yay you. Squarespace. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much again for coming on. It was a pleasure having you. No, thanks for having me. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Talking Code podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure to sign up for our mailing list at talkingcode.com. If you liked this episode, please be sure to open up iTunes and leave us a review. And if you're dying for us to talk about something in particular, go to talkingcode.com slash ask and let us know. We read and respond to every listener question. So even if you just want a little advice, we're here to help.